Well, I wonder how many of you were expecting this passage. You thought surely he's going to read about the tomb. He's going to read about Mary hearing Jesus say his name, or hearing Jesus say her name, rather. Um, But we're continuing on in the Gospel of Acts, and it's for a reason. Because what we see in this passage today is that encountering the risen Jesus transforms us from enemies to instruments of purpose. That's what this passage is about. Encountering Jesus, the risen Jesus, transforms us from enemies to instruments of purpose. And I want to ask you a question as we start. I want to ask you this question. What do you call a life-changing experience? Maybe some of you have had life-changing experiences this week. Sometimes they're as frivolous as a good meal. We talk to each other and we eat a meal and we go, that's life-changing. I'm going to come back here at another time. We drink a glass of wine and we go, now, I'll never be able to drink any other wine. That was really good. That was life-changing. Or sometimes the experiences are more profound than that, aren't they? Maybe it is a love that you experienced that changed your life. Because of that love, you have never been able to look at life the same. Maybe it's a near-death experience that changed your life. Maybe it is a death that changed your life. Today, we're looking at a passage that is about life-changing experiences. And I want to ask you, do you know what it is to have a near life? Life Life-changing experience. Because this passage is about encountering the risen Jesus, and that encountering him will transform enemies into instruments of God's purpose. There's a story here. I want to just share with you the narrative. Let it speak for itself. And then there are just a couple of results that I want to look at with you. So let's look at this passage. If you don't have those blue Bibles in front of you, you can turn to page 917. They're right there. This would be a good one to read. What is the first thing that we see? We see the encounter of Saul with the risen Jesus. We see this encounter. Some of you know that Saul is also Paul in the Bible, right? You you recognize that. And you go, why, wait, why is he Saul and then he becomes Paul? Well, well, Saul was born a Roman citizen, and so it's not unusual that he would have been given both a Jewish, a Hebrew name, Saul, and a Roman name, Paul. And as Acts progresses and Saul focuses more on Gentiles, those are non-Jews, to proclaim the name of Jesus, he is, cons- he is, he is called Paul, in this book of Acts. But here, he is called Saul. And this is Saul's encounter with the resurrected Jesus. So look at it with me, if you will, again, on page 917 of those Bibles. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Nothing's different, right? 
You've met Saul twice already in Acts, the end of chapter 7. You saw that, Act, that Saul was present at Stephen's, uh, at Stephen's um, martyrdom when Stephen was killed. And it says that Saul held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. They threw him in a pit, and it took hours to throw enough rocks to kill him and then to bury him. And it was hard work, and they gave their cloaks to one named Saul. We open chapter 8, and we hear that Saul was also the one who went house to house. And with his own hands, he dragged off men and women who professed faith in Jesus, and he took them to the high priest and had them put in prison. And when there were opportunities, he forced them to blaspheme against God. And when there were opportunities to vote that they be put to death, he voted and said, I vote that they be put to death. This is who Saul is. Saul is not a guy that you and I would want to be hanging out with. Saul was one who was, as his own admission later says, an enemy of God. He himself was an enemy. And then we pick up the passage. Verse 3, And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. What we see... In this passage is Jesus capturing the captor. He simply says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul answers with the question, who are you? Suddenly Saul, who thought he understood what he stood for, was now dazed and confused. The image is an image of a lightning strike. That which is brighter than the sun, which knocks people to the ground, right? A strike of lightning that would have sent Paul to his knees and those with him also to their knees, to the ground. And when Saul said, who are you? The one who is saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He hears the voice, I am Jesus. And you can only imagine at that moment Saul's mind going, wait a minute. Jesus is alive? And he stops. We read also in Luke or Acts 22 and Acts 26, Saul telling the same story, excuse me, Paul telling the same story that Luke tells us here. And in Acts 22, Saul says, what do you want me to do? And Jesus tells him, go on to Damascus and wait. And so for three days, Saul goes to Damascus. The captor is led captive in his blindness. And he is imprisoned in the darkness. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. It is a picture of for Saul of death. 
In fact, in another place in 1 Corinthians 15, he would tell the Christians in Corinthians, I was the least of the apostles. I was a stillborn apostle, is what he says. When I became an apostle, I became an apostle from a place of death. I was dead. I was an enemy of God. Imagine for those three days what a Pharisee of Pharisees, one who claimed his own righteousness would be enough not only for those around him to honor him, but for God to one day say to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. Think about what the blind Pharisee did for those three days. Saul memorized tons of Scripture, and it must have overflowed from his mind the accounts in Isaiah when God promises to remove the blindness of people. Saul must have gone through each of those verses and said, will God really do this? He must have gotten hung up on Isaiah 53 that says he was bruised for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and that pleased the Lord to crush him And by his wounds, we were healed. And Paul must have been going, wait a minute. That reality of a suffering Messiah that was to him only moments before, so repulsive that he wanted nothing to do with the suffering Messiah, suddenly had at its end not the death of God's Messiah, but the life of God's Messiah, the risen Jesus. Did he get all the way to Zechariah 17, or 12 rather, that says that when he looked upon those who had pierced him, they wept? Do you think that Paul in those three days got to the weeping part and wondered what is happening? That's not the only encounter with the resurrected Jesus that we see. Ananias has one of his own. Verse 10 starts with this. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Pretty interesting. The only location in the whole of Scripture that we know. We know it was Judas' house on Straight Street, and apparently Straight Street still exists in Damascus to this day. The only thing you don't know is what number Straight Street Ananias went to. But he went to Judas' house. And he was told there, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And here's Ananias engaged with the risen Jesus. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias encounters the risen Jesus. He encounters the risen Jesus as Jesus comes to him and says, Go, I want you to do my bidding. You're my instrument, Ananias. You're going to go and do what I say. 
Ananias later tells Paul in the next couple of verses, Jesus, the same one who met you on the road, has sent me to you. That's where we get the word apostle. <laughs> Ananias was sent by Jesus to be his instrument in Saul's life. But Ananias, whether out of fear or repulsion, we don't know. He says, but Lord, are, are you sure? This is Saul. You've heard the stories about this guy, haven't you? He's your enemy. He's persecuting the church. He has the right to take me and put me in prison. I'm going to go see him. And Jesus tells Ananias again, go. It starts off that easy. Go. The question is, are you going to obey me, Ananias? Go. And then he says this of Saul. He says, go. For he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine. And I'm going to use him to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, the kings, and even to the nation of Israel. And what we see is Ananias obeying. You see, I've told you that encountering the risen Jesus transforms us from enemies to instruments of purpose. And Luke is demonstrating to Theophilus, the person to whom he's writing this book, this account. He's saying, look what happens when people meet Jesus. People are changed from being an enemy of Christ to being an instrument of his. And the last bit of this narrative is found as the resurrected Ananias and the resurrected Saul meet each other. As these two individuals who are transformed and understand that death is not the end of life, but life is the end of life for anyone who trusts in Jesus. Life is the end of life. Not a destructive fire, but life. Suddenly they meet each other. Listen to it. So Ananias departed and entered the house. What could Ananias have done? Ananias could have gone up to Paul and said, I know who you are. And I hate you. You have killed my brothers and sisters. And the only reason I'm here is because Jesus sent me here. And now that I'm here, I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do so that you would have sight. But don't think that you are my friend in any way. Don't think that there's any compassion. But is that what Ananias does? Imagine Paul. He hears the door open. It creaks. And he hears the footsteps walk into his room and he wonders now I am at the hands of the very people I have been slaughtering what is going to happen and what we read in verse 17 is Ananias laying his hands on him and saying to him literally Saul Brother, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Ananias, sent by Jesus, Jesus' instrument touches Saul with his hands, calls this murderer his brother, and fulfills Jesus' promise that Ananias would not only regain his sight, but would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And all we hear from Saul is silence. Saul simply says, I will receive. I will receive. Immediately he sees. Immediately it says he is baptized. And then it says, after having fasted for three days, he had something to eat and was strengthened. I told you before that Luke three times in this Acts account mentions this. This time, in his own voice, as Paul must have explained to him, as Ananias must have explained to him. But in Acts 22, Paul speaks of it himself. And also in Acts 26. And you've got to wonder, why did Theophilus need to hear it three times? Why did Luke want his friend, the most excellent Theophilus, to hear this three times? Another Greek, a non-Jew. Could he have been the persecutor? Was there something in his life that said, that's not forgivable? There's no way. I have persecuted God enough in my life. But Luke records it three times for us. Here we see the Apostle Paul who declared himself a stillborn apostle. I was dead, an enemy of God, when he made me alive. We see this apostle raised to newness of life. And we read, as if we've never read it before, that passage in Ephesians 2 that says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it goes on from there. The Apostle Paul is so excited about what has happened. The question is, what is our response? I think two come from Ananias, two come from Paul, and two come from Ananias. We'll close with these. Saul asks two really good questions, doesn't he? Two questions that we ought to ask. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Listen, for those of you who are here today who have yet to profess faith in Christ, this is a good question to ask. Who are you, Lord? Because the argument of this text is that it is an encounter with Jesus that will transform you from being an enemy to being an instrument for God's purposes. And you go, wait a minute, I haven't, I haven't had an encounter with Jesus. I'll wait for the lightning strike, Bradley, no big deal. I'm, I'm going out. The likelihood of you being struck by lightning, I can't remember, is massive, right? There's just no way it's going to happen. So you're like, fine. But you see, this is why this is recorded and why the entirety of the New Testament is recorded. Because the place you encounter Christ is in the words of Scripture. 
And you ask yourself the question, who are you, Jesus? It's the number one question that you can ask because all of Christianity depends on who Jesus is, period. It's the number one question that you can ask. But I want to say to you who have professed faith in this room, it is also the question that you and I ought to ask and keep asking, who are you, Lord? It is the question that we ought to continue to be amazed at who Jesus is. Five years into my marriage, we fly back from our second honeymoon in St. John. And on the plane, wise Bradley looks at young Mita and says, you know, five years in, I think I understand everything about you. <laughs> you can only imagine where the conversation went from there, right? Honestly, it ended us up in a counseling office for a long, long time. And you want to know what I really understood? I understood enough about my wife, enough about her to protect myself from being challenged by her. I knew just enough. And I wasn't going to look deeper because I didn't want to be changed. How much more so, Christians, are we that way with Jesus? I know enough and my life has a stasis that I'm happy with. But the question we ought to ask time and time again is, who are you, Lord? Because our knowledge of Christ isn't supposed to be just enough to protect us, but to continue to be blown away by a God who loves you so much that he would send his son, that your sins would be forgiven. You see, the second question is there too. The question that we ought to ask. And again, you got to go to Acts 22 to hear Paul say that he did ask the question. It doesn't conflict with Acts 9. But there Paul says, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Now again, are you brave enough to ask that question? What do you want me to do and to wait? Did you know that one Christian's motto, a guy named John Calvin, who is a Frenchman, and I know many of you have been traveling, all of you have been watching what's going on in Paris. This Frenchman, John Calvin, in the 16th century, was later in his life, even in his training as a lawyer, to be converted and to believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. His motto was this, I offer my heart to thee promptly and sincerely. Promptly and sincerely. The other question that we learn from Paul is, what do you want me to do? And I want to say it is a great bellwether to your life because the degree to which we center our lives on the resurrection will be clear from our willingness to suffer for Jesus' sake in this life. Yes, you heard me right. If your life is about the removal of suffering, I want to be bold and tell you now, you are not focused 
on the resurrection of Jesus. And look, I long for you to focus on life and not death. Don't be afraid to suffer because encountering Jesus transforms us from enemies to instruments of his purpose. So what does Ananias teach us? No one is beyond Jesus' reach. When's the last time you heard of somebody who was converted from unbelief to belief? How did you respond? Did you go, I don't know it. Like, I kind of know who he was before, and we'll wait and see, right? That's the answer, especially for New England. Ah, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. I've heard that before. We'll wait and see. What we hear from Ananias is not that. But it is a celebration of conversion, a celebration that exalts in an immediate embrace Saul, brother. Our lives are new, and they start over now because Jesus is alive. And finally, we live courageous compassion to live resurrected relationships. The resurrection redefines everything, and you know that. You know that if the resurrection is true, then everything else is different. Nothing is the same anymore. The pieces of your life begin to fit together, and you begin to wonder, how does a God love a person like me? And change me from his enemy to his instrument of purpose. God, who are you? And what do you want me to do? Listen as if you hear it for the first time as I close. With Paul's own words from 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. For our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, 
if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Therefore, therefore, let us keep the feast. Pray with me.